Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning on this uh, beautiful weekend day. You know, we got a chance this weekend of some showers, but we certainly, certainly could use that. Uh, but we did get a little uh, break from this intense heat, uh, the 100-degree temperatures. It's going to affect a lot what's going on in the outdoors. We'll make sure that's included in the show today. Going to get back to more seasonal temperatures now, but in a week or so, that means 90s. So it's going to stay hot and dry. We have a chance for a little rain. Hopefully, we'll get that. We're going to take you today, a little later on in the show, to a place where they're catching some huge trout. I mean, just giant trout. We're going to talk to them. We're also going to talk both big game and walleye, big game hunting and walleye fishing with Nate Zielinski. Uh Ronnie Castiglione is going to join us uh, in the second hour, and we're going to talk both wet wading in some rivers, but also maybe some summer patterns and some what's going on in the fishing world all around. So we have a lot to cover. Let's go to the phones. Uh, joining us, he's the editor of Trout Magazine. He's uh, uh, the editor at large for Field and Stream Magazine. And he's occasionally a fill in host on this radio show, among his many other accomplishments. He's a good friend of mine, Kirk Dieter. Good morning, Kirk. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. I've learned to abbreviate your resume because it eats up the whole show. <laughs> it just means that I have to have a lot of irons in the fire to make a living, you know. Yeah, that's what you know. That's what I, I I told somebody once. They said I'm good at a lot of things. I just don't do much. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you you probably heard the intro, and I talked a little bit about this heat. And I know you know as the editor of Trout Magazine and uh, part of the uh, Trout Unlimited, you take a. Uh, Conservation is a huge part of what you guys talk about. And right now, this weather has probably put a lot of stress on the fish. A couple reasons. We haven't had the water in some places, and these temperatures were unusually warm. What are you seeing out there? You're right, Terry. It's, it's kind of a dangerous combination of low flows and high temperatures. And when trout are in water that's over, say, 65 degrees, certainly when by the time it's pressing 70 degrees, it's really just not good to catch them, it's, it's, and then they they die a lot if uh, if you do catch them, and let them, even if you let them go. Um, so uh, we, we kind of encourage people to take their thermometers with them and either fish early in the morning or you know uh, stay away from water temps that are seventy degrees plus. And we've seen that the last few days on the like Upper Colorado River, for example. So, but you know, there's a lot of options though. You can just Go, let's go, go to the lake instead. Let's go to the pond. Let's fish for bass or fish for other species that are a little hardier. Uh, but those cold water temps are really important for trout. And it's, sometimes it's better if we want to fish next year uh, to really be careful about how we go about things this year. Well, we've already had some closings. The Yampa below Stagecoach Reservoir has been closed because of the water temperatures and low flows. And uh, just use some common sense. Like you said, take a thermometer with you. And you mentioned lakes, and I want to get back to that because I think that's such an incredible alternative to a good part of the year in Colorado that gets overlooked by fly anglers especially. But also, we have a tremendous number of high alpine lakes, like in Rocky Mountain National Park, 
and in the Indian Peaks area. And we have a lot of small streams at those levels that there still is a little snow up there. The water is cold. So there are places you may just have to get off the beaten path and walk a little bit. And that, to me, is some of the essence of fly fishing anyway, Kirk. Yeah, that's the reason we live here, right? It's uh, beautiful to go for the hikes. And, and then if you can bring a rod along and, and get to the, like you said, some of the high alpine streams, they're just doing fine. And uh, get off the beaten path, and you find fish that are a little bit more eager as well. You can be using dry flies and simple casts and have a great time if you're willing to walk a mile or so. So that's, uh, that's a real bonus. And plus, you learn a lot. Um, fishing different types of water. Little streams are a little bit different. Uh, the lakes are a little bit different. You have different presentations. And so you round out your abilities as an angler if you try different things. Let's talk a little bit about lakes. And let's start with trout in lakes. And we'll get to some of the other species too. But, you know, I came and we actually both came from a conventional fishing background. We grew up in the Midwest or my wife says I got older. She says I never grew up. And then, and so our first fishing was usually spinning gear, but then we took to fly fishing later in life. And I do a combination. I think you do too. And, but anglers who grew up or learned fishing as a fly fisherman, fishing rivers and streams sometimes have a very tough time adapting to fishing still water because their whole fishing experience has been looking at the river and these seams and these these current breaks are where the fish will be and then using the current in the river to make your presentation to get it to drift through where none of that happens on the lake or not very much on the lake uh, and so you have to take a different approach and I think it gets a little bit intimidating sometimes to fly anglers. It does. You know, I think that the interesting thing about that is that there are some similarities. It's just a microcosm of what's happening on the river. And what I mean by that is when I'm fishing a river, I'm looking for changes, changes in current, changes in structure where there's rocks or logs or something, um, changes in the color, ch- you know, changes in the depth. And the same things apply if you're fishing in a lake. It's just a little bit harder to see them sometimes. There's changes in currents where there's inlets and outlets and so forth. There's drop-offs in shelves. That's a change in the depth. Uh, There's changes in structure because there's rocks and logs and so forth in lakes. So if you think about it that way and you just try to zero in a little bit more carefully, um, those same rules apply, and you can be successful fishing lakes by applying the rules that you use on the river. I think you're absolutely right, and a lot of times – fish will be rising on the lake and you can actually they'll show themselves to you the difference between a fish rising on a lake and a fish rising in a river is the fish rising in the river will come out of his holding spot he'll rise up take a fly or take a bug off the water a fish rising in the lake when he comes down he might keep moving along and rise in a different spot next time so you have to kind of watch the movements of those rises but it can be a, a uh, the other thing, though, that fish in lakes can get really fat and happy. You can catch some extremely large fish in still water. Yeah, it's an extremely tough fish, too. And they're strong, and they pull, and they've got lots of different directions that they can go once you hook into them. So uh, I've always thought that lake fishing was something that I look forward to every year, especially when this time of year rolls around, you've got some of the best hatches. You know, you've got the damselflies that are starting to hatch in some places um calabatus is probably the best overall hatch i think for still water and that's gonna happen pretty soon 
and it already is in some places, as you said when we were talking the other day. So it's it's a it's a great time of year to be out on lakes. Now, say there's a Calavetus hatch going on. How do you approach a still water? I mean, if they're not rising, let's just start out they're not rising, but you know that you've heard, you know the Calavetus are active in that lake. Do <laughs> you start with a sinking line, or do you go to a floating line with maybe a longer leader under an indicator? How do you approach it? I typically will fish a longer leader, like 12 to 14 feet leader, and then uh, I still use a floating line, but I'll put a nymph on, like a gild nymph or something small, and twitch it. You've got to be very careful not to retrieve it very quickly, but maybe one inch at a time. If you make a cast in an area that you think looks fishy, let it sink a few inches under the surface, uh, like up against a weed mat, and then twitch it a little bit. Pull it in one inch at a time, two inches at a time. And that tends to be the way that I'll go if I'm not seeing a, a you know, heads on the surface and fish sipping bugs off the top. Well, you know, you made a point about how you retrieve it because in the river, the, you know, a fly angler will concentrate on his line and his, his indicators or his dry flies, and he'll watch the drift and he'll mend his line and he'll try to keep a, a drag feed drift to get a real natural presentation. In a lake, you have to visualize whether it's fishing a streamer like a minnow or a leech where you can be a little more aggressive or fishing uh, a dry fly or a, a nymph, you have to be able to visualize in your mind what you're doing. If you, Like you said, if you strip in a foot or two a line, well, that calabatus never moves like that in the water, so it's going to look very unnatural. But if you take just two fingers and roll a couple inches of line in your finger, you'll be sub- Do that close to you where you can actually see the fly in the water, you'll be amazed how much you move that fly or just the twitching of your rod sometimes. So you really do have to be able to visualize, don't you? You do, and that's, that, that's probably the most important tip I'd say for all still water fishing is being able to really match the forage. In other words, make your fly move like a minnow moves. Make your fly move like a nymph or you know aquatic insect would move. And you're right. If, you, if you're stripping them in fast, but it look like a hydroplane boat, um, there's no way that a trout's going to eat that. So mastering that is really, I think, half the ball game when you're out there fishing lakes. No, I couldn't agree more. And we have a number of lakes. We're going to take people up, actually, out to the North Park area. We're going to talk about that later in the hour. And they are catching huge fish in the lakes up there. Whether you're a fly angler or a conventional angler, you have a real legitimate shot at an 8- to 10-pound rainbow right now or cut bow up in that, or brown, up in that North Park area. And they're going to come on and tell us what's happening. Let's switch gears while we have a minute or two left. You also talked about other species. You know, every pond in the front range of Colorado has bass and bluegills and crappie in it. And a lot of our lakes are full of smallmouth bass. And there's no reason you can't go after those species with a fly rod. It's just a lot of fun. It's a great way to improve your game and have a lot of fun and find some action when, the, like in, we were talking about earlier, when the trout might be stressed in some places. Switch it over to bass. All you need is a little chartreuse and white clouser minnow fly and, you know, a five- or six-weight fly rod and a good leader and good floating line, and off you go. And it's I mean, the world is your oyster when you're working it that way. Oh, it's so much fun. And if you get a bunch of small bluegills and you want to teach a, uh, a youngster to fly fish, 
uh, a little nymph that you use on the river underneath an indicator, just a foot or two down or a dropper, dry dropper, you'll just kill those bluegills. They'll get action on almost every cast. It's such a great way to uh, to approach it. Hey, did I ever tell you my Bob Clauser Lefty Crace story? No, I'm not that. No. So Bob and Lefty were both on the radio show with me. And uh, Bob says to Lefty, he says, Lefty, do you remember the first time we fly fished together, what you asked me? And 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 uh, Bob said, and Lefty goes, yeah. I said, I asked you if you watch your back cast. And Bob said, I said, no. And Lefty said, that's good because I wouldn't want to look at it either. <laughs> <laughs> character. He was, he was quite a character. Oh God! I'll tell you what I miss. I miss Lefty. What a great guy he was. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Yep, my friend. We are running out of time. Any what's coming up in Trout Magazine or Field and Stream or your other publications? What do you got coming out? We've got some really cool issues coming out for trout specifically, and uh, we're going to look at wildfire because that's another topic that you know we're we in Colorado are going to have to face over and over again. We're certainly dealing with the effects from last year, and unfortunately, if as dry and hot as it is now, we're probably going to see some more of that this year. So we've got a whole issue on wildfire, how it impacts fish, impacts rivers, and how they recover. And uh, so look for that in the summer issue of Trout. How do I get Trout Magazine? Join Trout Unlimited, please. It's uh, tu.org, www.tu.org, and you can sign up and you get the magazine and membership, and you know you're you're helping out the fish and the fishing all over the, the country. All right, my friend, we need to get on the water together. We should. I'll look forward to it. We'll maybe go bass fishing. I'd like to do that. All right. Let's make it happen. We will talk to you again soon. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Okay. You too. Take care. You bet. Kirk Dieter for Trout Magazine and Field and Stream. Just a great friend. Him and I were very close with the late Charlie Myers, who kind of mentored us on the on some of the outdoor writing and uh, just developed the bond. Great guy, great fisherman, and just a good guy to talk to. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, we'll have a Parks and Wildlife segment right here from Cheyenne Mountain Park on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. 65 years of serving your outdoor needs. Stop by a Jack's store near you. You'll be amazed at all the great equipment they carry. Let's go to the phones, and joining us from Cheyenne Mountain State Park is Bob Falcone and Rick Paulson. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How you doing? Good morning. Doing great. Good morning. Hey, you guys, I'm sure you're calling us from the Colorado Springs area or at Cheyenne Mountain Park. How's the weather down there today? It's going to be another warm day, but I guess we're going to get some showers later in the afternoon. So, you know, that always brings a downer for the afternoon, but it's just the nature of the beast here, so... Yeah, you you guys are want to talk about a program, but before we get into it, why don't you tell people where Cheyenne Mountain Park is located and just briefly describe the park? Um, I can do that. This is Bob, and uh, Cheyenne Mountain State Park is just south and west of uh, the city of Colorado Springs. It's basically right on the east face of Cheyenne Mountain, and it would be the third newest state park in the park system and it consists of a a campground and some wonderful trails including one that goes to the very top of Cheyenne Mountain. It really does go through some terrain changes doesn't it especially with that new trail? Yeah the Dixon Trail is a bit of a challenge it's at least a 14 mile round trip hike uh, 
that you have to do in a day because there's no backcountry camping in, in, in our state park. Well, and a lot of the, but there are a lot of easier trails there, and a lot of them are multi-use. Is that right? Yes, uh, most of the trails are multi-use, and most of them are pretty easy. That's really the only difficult trail in the park. Well, you know, what's, everybody knows with COVID what's happened, that we've seen, I don't know if it's proper to say an influx of people going outdoors, but we've seen a rush of people to get outdoors. People have either rediscovered outdoors or are discovering outdoor activities for the first time in their life. All of our state parks have been extremely busy over the last year. And our resources have been stretched, uh, and yet we want people to have a good time. We want them to be able to interact well. We want them to understand how to use these facilities so that we can all enjoy them. And it's, it's put a strain on parks personnel. You guys started a program at Cheyenne, or you're part of a program at Cheyenne Mountain, that really helps address this. Tell us about the program. Yeah, so this is Rick. Yeah, so what had happened is... Um, I know Bob and I have both been volunteering at the park for quite some time. It's, I was an interpretive naturalist, and, and Bob did a lot of work with Friends of Shine Mountain State Park. And we got reports from our senior ranger that there was conflicts between a lot of the new users, between mountain bikers and hikers in particular. And so we started trying to think of a way to start mitigating some of that, and so especially with people who don't necessarily know trail etiquette. And so we came up with the idea of having volunteer trail patrols on foot and on bike and mountain bike to try to be that good example of how you interact with each other on the trail. And uh, we ca- ended up calling it Trail Ambassadors. Uh, I'm the mountain bike trail ambassador lead, and Bob is the hiking trail, uh, excuse me, hiking trail ambassador lead. And so with that, um, I want to go, we'll get into a little more of the details, but I think you really did a great job of describing it. You know, we've got, we don't ever want, we want people outdoors. We don't want them to think we don't want them on the trails or out there with us, but, but a lot of people are new to it. They just don't understand how you're supposed to interact and they get caught up in what they're doing and everybody has their own agenda, but no one's out there with nefarious agendas they're all out there to have fun so we have to learn how to share these resources and that's why you created this great program now if i'm not mistaken to be you have several trail ambassadors that work with you what does it take to become a trail ambassador really is just the desire to do so and uh as we get people um, we have about 30 of them right now about half for mountain bike and half for hikers and as people drop in and out of the program we will add new ambassadors all they have to do is contact our senior ranger or bob or i and uh, we have a training session where we teach them what their responsibilities are what they can and cannot do in terms of we don't have law enforcement authority obviously but we do help out in that and if we see somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing maybe riding too fast or or don't or having a dog on a trail that you're not supposed to have it on we can gently remind them that hey you know you're you can't have your dog here hey slow down and um so we train them on what they can and can't do and how to interact with the public in that way now if i'm if i'm not mistaken they do get like a shirt that identifies them which i think is great because then it doesn't come across as just some other trail person who maybe doesn't like your activity, it comes across as somebody who at least is vested with a little bit of authority from the park. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, uh, the Friends of Cheyenne Mountain State Park bought shirts and vests for the volunteers, so they are identifiable. They have CPW volunteer hats that they can wear, and they are identifiable, identifiable. So the public knows who they're dealing with, and the public's also attracted to these people. They they see our trail ambassadors. Question or comment also. Yeah, and I and. We want people to know that these people aren't there just to be enforcers. They're there to help remind people of the rules, but they're also there to answer questions. Like you said, they're there to help guide people. Somebody might come up and say, hey, is, what's this trail like? And they're going to understand that and help them out, right? Exactly. And, um, you know, we, when we're, when, one of the things that we ask the trail ambassadors to do is just greet guests. Say hi. Tell them to have a nice hike. If you see them looking at one of the trail map signs, go ask them if they have questions. Um, our trail ambassadors also have carry first aid kits in case a kid scrapes their knee or something like that. Um, we hand out trail maps if people need to need to have something with them. And uh, we can also <clears throat> uh, are working on getting everybody real smart on the floor in front of the park. So when trail users have questions about, you know, what, what plan am I looking at? Where am I, do I have to worry about bears, anything like that, which comes up more often than you would, than you would imagine. But, uh, but we train them on that so that they understand. They can, excuse me, they can answer questions about the flora and fauna. All right. We're running out of time, but a couple things. First of all, I had a chance to talk to Bob earlier in the week. And he tells me that it really has uh, garnered positive response within the park. In fact, one of the things, Bob, I thought you said there's there's been less trash and fewer complaints due to the ambassador program. That's exactly true. People, uh, the, the staff at the park is hearing less complaints. They are getting positive feedback. People like seeing somebody on the trails who's keeping an eye on things and, and offering assistance. So it's been a very positive impact uh, at the park. Now, last question, guys. If somebody wants to join the program or if there's another park or another entity that would like to contact you about how you implemented this, how would they get a hold of one of you? They can contact the park directly and, and uh, you know, they can just look them up on the CPW website, contact the park directly, and they'll know how to get in touch with us, and, and they'll pass along the request, and we'll be in touch with them. All right. Hey, sounds like a great program. Hey, guys, I know you're both outdoor enthusiasts. Uh, thanks for giving back so much at a time when people have really needed the outdoors. It's, it's good to see outdoor enthusiasts and sportsmen taking the initiative to really interact and help people. Thank you so much for the program and for coming on to share it with us today. Well, thanks for having us on. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. That's a Bob Falcone and Rick Paulson about the Trail Ambassador program. Might be something when you're there, you know, you ask them a question. Also, might be something that uh, you want implemented an entity you know about to help everybody get along a little better. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to take you down to the Arkansas headwaters. We're going to talk about dispersed camping. That's right, camping with no reservations, no sites how you can get out there, all that and more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear, 65 years of servicing the outdoor public, a local company up and down the front range of Colorado. Let's go to the phones, and joining us from the Arkansas Headwaters Recreation Area is Jeff Hammond. Good morning, Jeff. Morning, Terry. Uh, thanks for coming on with us. 
Uh, what's the weather like? We're asking everybody. What's the weather like down in your part of the country today? Oh, it is actually refreshingly overcast. Um, it's been a little bit warm out here recently, so a weekend with, with some clouds has been nice and cool. So what are the conditions on the Arkansas River? I know that there was limited snowpack, but there was still some coming down, but you have releases that are controlled. What's happening along the Arkansas as far as flows right now? Yeah, right now we're at kind of a nice um, medium or, or low side of medium. Browns Canyon is running at about um, 1380 cubic feet per second. Um, definitely the snowpack disappeared pretty quick on for us this year, but um, we do have a voluntary flow management program that helps to kind of smooth out and, and mitigate um, any potential low water. So. Uh, it's not going to be a legendary high water year, but we are doing our best to make sure that uh, boatable flows are, are maintained. Now, what about the fishing? I, I saw there's pretty good rafting right now. How about the fishing? Yeah, um, we had our high water peak was probably last week, um, and with that, the flows have been dropping a little bit since. Um, so the, the river is slowing down a little bit. The clarity has really improved, um, but the temps are still nice and low, so we're not worried about overstressing fish. So definitely with that clarity improving, the fishing has really been picking up. All right. Now, uh, Arkansas Headwaters is kind of a unique state park. It's spread up and down the river. Kind of describe how the park is set up. Yeah, so it's probably different than, than other parks that most people have driven into where you drive in through one gate and you're you're in the park until you drive back out through that gate. Um, our sites don't have a, a, a gate or a gate attendant when you drive in. It's all self-service on the honor system. Uh, but we're spread from Leadville to Pueblo along the Arkansas River. Uh, we stretch about 152 miles. Um, so uh, we have a, lo- a lot of boat ramps, put-ins and takeouts for, for the rafting runs as well as the campgrounds that are paid campgrounds. And then we haven't we haven't done a full count on it, but uh, kind of an unlimited amount of dispersed camping options, uh, depending on how now, many you, we get. Yeah. Now you mentioned you have a lot of conventional campgrounds. Those are all on a reservation system, and those are up and down the area. And you go on to either the uh, you go to the website or the phone call, and even the day of it. But you have to have a reservation for those. The dispersed camping is a little different, where it isn't necessarily an assigned campsite that you can reserve, although and some of your diverse camping, you do have some designated sites, don't you? Yeah, we have uh, kind of two models right now in our dispersed sites. So there's the traditional dispersed camping, which is, um, you know, some people call it boondocking. Um, but essentially, it's a, it's free, first come, first serve. You're, if you've ever camped out in the National Forest, you're probably familiar with that model where you can just find an area that's that's open and pull off the road and camp and as long as you're not damaging any vegetation you can you can camp there Um, the other model we have is what we call designated dispersed and we've moved a couple of our areas over to that it's still free still first come first serve but we designate a specific number of sites within an area and with that the purpose of that is just to limit um limit the impact and concentrate it into specific locations. That way the whole area doesn't get loved to death if you get, like, spider web roads moving all over the place. 
Now, I do know you have some rules, but before we even get to that, let's talk about how busy it gets. Now, on a, on a typical weekday or weekend, what's the difference? When's the best time to come, and how busy does it seem to get? Well, more and more so, our weekends seem to be starting on Wednesday now, and they end about on Tuesday midday. So um, <laughs> we're, uh, we're kind of busy all summer long at, at this point. Um, our reservable campgrounds. Um, do book up rather far in advance, so I definitely encourage people, especially if you're looking for a weekend, um, those reservations open up six months in advance, and and some of them book out six months in advance as well. Um, All right, now let's talk about, we've got people coming up, they came up for the dispersed camping, and you really want to encourage them, you want them to come and use the park. But they have some rules. Tell us about the rules they need to be aware of when they come up for the dispersed camping. Yeah, so we have three main rules that apply to our dispersed camping here. And while they're the rule here, um, they may also be good considerations to have in in other places, Um, especially as more and more people are getting outside. We want to make sure that um, across the state we're doing our best to to practice leave no trace principles. Um, so the first one, and, and most people are, are really just here for the weekend, but we do limit camping to 14 days in a 28-day period. Um, and that kind of gives everyone their fair shot at, at finding a campsite. Um, it also limits overuse as well. You don't get um, you know, people posting up all, all summer long. Um, the second one is that we do require that all fires are in a, in a fire pan. And what that looks like is uh, an elevated container off the ground with uh, a rigid construction. So that could be metal or maybe ceramic, like some of those ceramic backyard fire pits. And it has to have at least two inch sides. Um, what, we, what we don't allow is like rock rings. And you'll see a lot of rock rings out in the back country. Um, but what we found here is with the, with the density of use we get, those really leave a lot of ugly burn scars on the landscape. They also tend to crop up all over the place. So you'll get a rock ring here and then 10 feet away, another one and another one and another one. And over time, they fill with ash and trash, and they just they start to be an eyesore. Um, the fire pan also helps with, uh, with limiting some wildfire risk, too. Um, most fire pans aren't very large, so it uh, kind of prevents the bonfire from, from getting built in the fire pit. Okay. okay, and you said there's three, so we have one more real rule, and that's one oh, yeah. that I, I think is really the next rule you're going to talk about is one that I think some people, when they head out camping, don't think about ahead of time, and it's becoming more and more of an issue. Tell us about that. Yeah, definitely, and, and this is one that, um, that I would definitely encourage people to, to consider using around the state, um, Well, it is certainly the rule here. And that is that we do require that, that any campers in our dispersed areas have a, a portable toilet system. Um, and that needs to be capable of carrying out human waste. I think we're all familiar with it with, with dogs at this point. You know, that's really become the standard. And um, you, you bag up your dog waste and then hopefully remember to carry it out with you. We don't want to see that left on the side of the trail. Um, but for our campers here, we ask, that to do, we ask them to do that with human waste as well. Um, so the... the and a luxury option is a, is a full-on portable toilet with a little shade shelter that goes around it. Um, you can get those at most kind of sporting goods stores. But uh, it, that can also be a little bit expensive, or if you're on a backpacking trip, um, you're not going to be able to carry that whole thing. So the, the simple option is 
is what's called a wag bag. And those are uh, essentially a, a dog bag, but for people. They have a powder in the bottom of it that makes human waste inert. And then you can throw it out in any kind of regular dumpster without any sanitation. Um, All right. What we don't allow here is uh, is what's called like cat holing, where you, you would dig a hole in the ground and do your business there. Um, it doesn't biodegrade fast enough in our desert ecosystem. And with the density of use we get, it would be a sanitation concern when people might be each other's up. All right. Well, we are running out of time here, Jeff, but uh, if people want more information, can they go to the website? Is that the best way? Absolutely. Our website's a little bit long, so I always just recommend if you Google search CPWAHRA, that first result will bring you to our, our website. All right, my friend, thank you for that information. People get out. Disperse camping is a great way to go. Just remember the rules so that we have beautiful places for all of us to camp. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time. You bet. Je Jeff Hammond from Parks and Wildlife. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back, we're going to take you to a place where you have a legitimate shot of catching a 10-pound rainbow almost every time you go out. I mean, not saying that's going to happen, but there's a shot. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. ジャックスアウトアギア。ウェイティングフォーカールフロムダッグギップフロムレイクジョンデスペンシムグレイトフィッシングゴイングアンアップデーイインサムティングマイドフコムアップバーアウトタイヤカインドフィッシングゴイング
five to eight inch fingerlings will grow five to six inches the first two years, and then they'll that that growth will slow down a little bit because they can't maintain that that kind of grow, growth rate when, once they're bigger. Now, when the fish start getting bigger in Lake John, the stickleback minnows have come back, and um, they don't seem to be affecting the population. But once the fish get big enough to eat those sticklebacks, they go on a real growth spurt, don't they? They absolutely do, and that's when you get the quote-unquote hogs in here, um, whether it's a cut bow, a cutthroat, or a rainbow. I mean, they're just enormous and fat. They call them Lake John fatties. They are um, just an amazing sight to see pulling them out of the water. I, I, I made a comment when we were leading into this before you came on that you have a legitimate chance to catch a 10-pound fish up there. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I mean, in the last uh, well, two weeks, I mean, every week I've had uh, more than one on my board. So in a, in a month, easily, uh, if not actually within a week, I should say. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. Now, in addition to the 10-pounders, are you seeing a lot of those fat five to six-pounders early and late in the day? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They are, you know, if, you, if you're if you trolling and you, you get the line a couple hundred feet behind you and you whatever you choose to do, uh, you're guaranteed at least a hit. Maybe not reeling it in, but you're, you're you know, when a big fish like that hits your line, and you're not ready, it'll snap that thing right off. Now, you talked about trolling. What are some of the other techniques people are using on Lake John? Um, well, we've got the the wet and dry fishermen. Uh, you know, the calabetas are coming out every night now. Uh, mosquito populations are starting to increase. Chrominids, of course, are, are have been happening over the last three weeks or so. And, and then... Uh, you know, your your shore fishermen, the bait fishermen are, are doing well with night crawlers and power baits. Uh, spoons and lures are working well. Castmasters especially uh, have been doing uh, kind of the best. And then Rapala and then Tasmanian Devil. So what about some of the other lakes in the area, Doug? You've got the Delaney's and you've got Cowdery. How are they fishing in Big Creek? Well, Cowdery is just slow because there's just not a lot of action there uh but people still go but they don't you know if you catch a, a 16 inch you're you're doing pretty good there at big creek is doing very well in fact last week uh a gentleman caught uh two tiger muskie a sauger and some lake trout all in the same week he was up there all week and just a beautiful fish and he said nobody was up there and it was a lot of fun and there's trout in Big Creek, too. So it's, there's brook trout and there's, I think, rainbows, brook trout and rainbows. Yeah, and, uh, and cuppos. Somebody told me that they've, they've caught cuppos up there. How about the Delaney's? What are we seeing there? Any of those big browns showing up yet? Yeah, the big browns are definitely showing up. Uh, just make sure you bring some deet with you because the time to go, again, it's early morning, late at night, and the mosquito population has uh, just come out and... If anybody doesn't know, the the Laney Buttes are surrounded by hay fields, which are flood irrigated. So the the mosquitoes are are a lot higher over there than they are at Lake John. But it's well worth the fishing. Well, and they also have some pretty good cutbow populations in both those lakes. I think, don't they? They do. They do. I mean, you're you know, if you don't catch a brown in north, you'll definitely catch a cutbow, and certainly in south, you will. 
All right, now let's talk about, well, we got a couple minutes left about your facilities, the Lake John Resort. Kind of tell people what you have to offer. Well, we do We do have boat rentals. We have uh, four boats. Uh, we've got a new one in the fleet this year, a 2021 16-foot B-Hull uh, with a four-stroke engine on it. Uh, we've got four cabins and a suite, uh, you know, a 30-site uh, uh, RV park that has all hookups in every site, 30 and 50 amp, obviously water and sewer, picnic tables, and uh, and we do storage as well uh, for your boats and RVs. You know, the problem with that RV sites you have, though, they're so far from the water, you can almost, almost can't cast from there. You almost have to walk about 10 feet. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's a it's a, it's really uh, you know it's really annoying. You know, people get annoyed that they even have to walk. You have to get up out of your lawn chair to go to the the lake. That's right. <laughs> so well, you right. might not yeah. have to. Well, you know, some of the sites you might not have to. <laughs> no, we've got one that's pretty close to the water that you could, you know, if you get a a good tough bubble and fill it all the way up, you could easily get it in the water. Oh yeah. So and then you have the store too. What can they? What if people come up need something? What do you offer at the store? So yeah, we've got a full bait and tackle, camping, auto marine uh, store. We also provide uh, fishing licenses and hunting licenses and whatnot, habitat stamp licenses, um, beer, obviously ice, firewood, all the all the essentials. We're basically the Seven Eleven of Lake John. So if people want to get a hold of you or find more information, what's the best way to find you, Doug? The best way is really to go to our Facebook page at Lake John Resort um, or our website at lakejohnresort.com, which also has a link to our Facebook page. All right, my friends. And, uh, yeah, you can give us a call at uh, 970-723-3226. I need to get up there and catch one of those hogs up there it sounds like it's incredible thank you doug the door's open the door's open terry get get up here all right thanks doug thank you sir you bet doug gibb from lake john it's some big fish coming out of there folks you want to catch a big one we're gonna take a time out we come back nate zelinski is going to join us he's going to talk some big game scouting getting ready yes it's time and then some walleye fishing right here on terry wickstrom outdoors on 104.3 the fan